0: Brian. Yes, Jeff. There's a recording in progress.
1: And I am glad that Zoom tells me that because I'd feel a little uncomfortable if we were doing a podcast that wasn't being recorded.
0: It's bona fide. It's bona fide. There's no sense doing a lot of happy talk and then expecting Jackson to like work the sound, the the music in, in between because it pays the same to just drop it on the front and then just go through the whole thing.
1: This one will be different.
0: Yeah. So, uh, we got, we got some pot, okay. Oh, first. Howdy! Howdy! And then what do I do?
1: This is
0: this is the Managing Expectations podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Winger. With me, as always, is the aide de camp, Brian Grimm. Howdy, Brian.
1: Howdy, Jeff. So great to be with you.
0: Yeah, gotten some really strong feedback. Um, Positive, strong positive strong now did i already did i already say that islands in the stream was yeah okay so, B, that
1: was a bg song song yeah
0: we, we don't have to we don't have to belabor that but um um yeah no my uh we, we we've gotten a couple of uh couple couple much younger guys younger even than you so, like 30 something. So, turns out that people are listening to some some 30 year old uh, uh, men, in addition to, of course, um, my gaggle of uh, damaged 30 year old women, uh, listen to the Managing Expectations podcast. That's very gratifying. Um, you know, the kids, you know, they get it.
1: I'm dying here. What are they saying?
0: Oh, it's just they, they like the podcast. Oh good, yeah. Um,
1: did they say uh, that it? Did they say that, that it slaps? I think that's what the kids say.
0: Um, is there is there a word that like the TikTok generation is using for old people? Something like Doogie or Pookie or you no? Know,
1: I don't know that gro- one.
0: Grophy. I don't know. I can't. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, okay, so, uh, I have, uh, have an agenda this time. Is that funny to you?
1: I like my mother. What is your agenda? Where is this coming from?
0: I sound like your mother.
1: No, no. It reminded me of my mother. What's his agenda? You've got to find out what the agenda is. Someone's got an agenda. It was always said in a very negative light.
0: Yeah, I suppose it it often is, but there's certain things that I want to accomplish. So I have time and again um, referenced William Styron's book, Darkness Visible, A Memoir of Madness. Uh, And I've said it's the best book that I know of that explains the condition of depression to to people that either have no idea because they've never been so afflicted or people who know they're feeling something but can't can't label it can't describe it can't get their hands on it as it were so uh in Styron's book he um is just great i mean he's he was of course one of uh the 20th century letters giants uh he wrote sophie's choice um, Confessions of Nat Turner, uh, so, um, and I think that one of the things about this book, I gave it to a, I gave it to a friend whose, uh, uh, English was his second language, and the vocabulary, um, was challenging for him, and Styron doesn't pull any punches, um, but he, um, you know, this is this is part of being articulate. Um, the other thing, it's very brief, but it has come to my attention that I have presented this book to many, many people in both written and audio form, and not all of them have taken advantage of it, to which I say, what the what? I mean, what the what and what? I mean, I'm not giving you this, like I, you know, get, get extra credit for it, So um, there's a couple of things I'd like to share if I may. And I, um, cause depression has been on my mind a little bit lately. Okay. So Styron writes depression's, excuse me, depression afflicts millions directly and millions more who are relatives and friends of victims. It has been estimated that as many as 1 in 10 Americans will suffer from the illness. As assertively democratic as a Norman Rockwell poster, it strikes indiscriminately at all ages, races, creeds, and classes, though women are at considerably higher risk than men. The occupational list, dressmakers, barge captains, sushi chefs, cabinet members of its patients is too long and tedious to give here. It is enough to say that very few people escape being a potential victim of the disease, at least in its milder form. Despite depression's eclectic reach, it has been demonstrated with fair convincingness that artistic types, especially poets, Are particularly vulnerable to the disorder, which in its graver clinical manifestation takes upward of 20% of its victims by way of suicide. I think what he's saying there is that, uh, particularly with women and artists, that sensitive people suffer disproportionately to those with a more a uh, mechanical or pragmatic um, bend. The thing that I would say too, is that when men decide to kill themselves, they are more successful uh, statistically than women because men tend to use guns, uh, whereas women use uh, other methods that uh, leave, more room for chance so so there's that uh styron goes on and he talks about his own case he said the depression that engulfed me was not of the manic type the one accompanied by euphoric highs which have been most probably presented which would have most probably presented itself earlier in my life I was 60 when the illness struck for the first time in the unipolar form, which leads straight down. I shall never learn what caused my depression as no one will ever learn about their own. To be able to do so will likely forever prove to be an impossibility. So complex are the intermingled factors of abnormal chemistry, behavior, and genetics, plainly, multiple components are involved perhaps three or four probably more in fathomless permutations that is why the greatest fallacy about suicide lies in the belief that there is a single immediate answer or perhaps combined answers as to why the deed was done um i think this is uh a very interesting because it is um a combination of things people say well what why are you feeling low and it's not just been one thing but and and i think you, you and i um, had this exchange but we do we say it's the straw that broke the camel's back we don't say it was the cinder block or Mm -hmm. the eye the the steel I beam that broke the camel's back you expect heavy things people are surprised that it was like one more light thing and they don't think about all the things in, in addition um the poet charles bukowski said it's not the big things that make us go mad it's the snap shoelace when we're running late for work
1: Mm
0: -hmm. right okay so then um let's see there's a there's another oh so so much of darkness visible uh, also talks about styren abusing alcohol for 40 years stopping it and he thinks that that was kind of the thing so he was like self-medicating for decades the depression started to come on he knew he wasn't supposed to drink, but he's feeling depressed. Guess what happened when he drank again? Yeah, it didn't get better. Mm-hmm. So, he writes: "Our perhaps, um, our perhaps understandable modern need to dull the sawtooth edges of so many of the afflictions we are heir to, has led us to banish the harsh." old-fashioned words madhouse asylum insanity melancholia lunatic madness but never let it be doubted that depression in its extreme form is madness the madness results from an aberrant biochemical process it has been established with reasonable certainty after strong resistance from many psychiatrists and not all that long ago. By the way, Darkness Visible was written in like 1990. So it's like a product of his work in like the late 80s, early 90s. So it's, which is to say it's 30 years old now. Mm -hmm. But um, psychiatrists, not all that long ago, that such madness is chemically induced amid the neurotransmitters in the brain probably as the result of systemic stress, which for unknown reasons causes a depletion in the chemicals, uh, no, no rep, Repin. Bro, no rep, no repinephrine, yeesh, and serotonin and the increase in a hormone, cortisol. With all of this upheaval in the brain tissues, the alternate drenching and deprivation, it is no wonder that the mind begins to feel aggrieved, stricken, and muddied, and the muddied thought processes register the distress of an organ in convulsion Sometimes, though not very often, such a disturbed mind will turn to violent thoughts regarding others. But with the minds turned agonizingly inward, people with depression are usually dangerous only to themselves. The madness of depression is, generally speaking, the antithesis of violence. It is a storm indeed, but a storm of murk. Soon evident are the slowed down responses, near paralysis, psychic energy throttled back to zero. Ultimately, the body is affected and feels sapped, drained. You looking something up?
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: What? How to pronounce that crazy chemical?
1: Norepinephrine.
0: No. What?
1: Norepinephrine.
0: Yes, I think that our listeners should know how to pronounce it. And I I don't believe that I have to, to be credible. Uh, he talks about um, pain and how you would never expect somebody with like a tooth I, I can't remember how he puts it, um, but like, if you're suffering from depression, okay, well, the deal was his wife had people over, but if he had a toothache or a backache or or or, or some physical malady, she never would've invited these people over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he says there was a quality so comfortless about that day's session that I went, this is with his head shrinker, uh, that I went home in a particularly wretched state and prepared for the evening. A few guests were coming over for dinner, something that I neither dreaded nor welcomed and which in itself, that is in my torpid indifference, reveals a fascinating aspect of depressions pathology. This concerns not the familiar threshold of pain, but a parallel phenomenon and that is the probable inability of the psyche of the psyche to absorb pain beyond predictable limits of time there is a region in the experience of pain where the certainty of alleviation often permits superhuman endurance we learn to live with pain in varying degrees daily or over longer periods of time and we are more often than not mercifully free of it. When we endure severe discomfort of a physical nature, our conditioning has taught us since childhood to make accommodations to the pain's demands to accept it, whether pluckily or whimperingly and complainingly, according to our personal degree of stoicism, but in any case to accept it, except in uh, intractable terminal pain, there is almost always some form of relief. We look forward to that alleviation, whether it be through sleep or Tylenol or self-hypnosis or a change of posture or most often through the body's capacity for healing itself. And we embrace this eventual respite as the natural reward we receive for having been temporarily such good sports and Doughty sufferers, such optimistic cheerleaders for life at heart. In depression, this faith in deliverance in ultimate restoration is absent. The pain is unrelenting. And what makes the condition intolerable is the foreknowledge that no remedy will come, not in a day, an hour, a month, or a minute. If there is a mild relief, if there is mild relief, one knows that it is only temporary, more pain will follow. It is hopelessness even more than pain that crushes the soul. So the decision making of daily life involves not as in normal affairs, shifting from one annoying situation to another less annoying situation, uh, to another less annoying, or from discomfort to relative comfort, or from boredom to activity, but moving from pain to pain. One does not abandon, even briefly, one's bed of nails, but is attached to it wherever one goes. And this results in a striking experience, one which I have called, borrowing military terminology, the situation of the walking wounded. For in virtually any other serious sickness, a patient who felt similar devastation would be lying flat in bed possibly sedated and hooked up to the tubes and wires of life support systems, but at the very least in a posture of repose and in an isolated setting. His individualism would be necess- would be necessary, uh, unquestioned and honorably attained. However, the sufferer from depression has no such offer, option and therefore finds himself like a walking casualty of war thrust into the most intolerable social and family situations i think that there are a lot of folks who feel that way the 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 thing in is and Styron talks about this is however much you think it will never pass it always does and this is why critic um cognitive behavioral therapy is so important you simply have to engage the mind first of all you have to force down negative thoughts which come from negative feelings and emotions so that your brain is on your side again and your brain knows that this will pass this too shall pass Mm -hmm. right you're going to say something
1: yeah. I thought that that was interesting talking about physical pain. Um, you know, the, the term walk it off is is so commonly used, right? I mean, you, you, you roll an ankle, you, you, you stub a toe, whatever, just go walk it off. You'll be all right. Some cases go sleep it off. Uh, you'll be fine in the morning. Um, Thinking, you know, that, that way of thinking um, may be good for physical pain, uh, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer than just walking it off when you're dealing with something much more serious.
0: Well, and I, I, and I think, look, you know, walk it off, uh, rub some dirt in it. Um, you know, there there is, particularly among men, a, a sense of, um, you know. To toughen up, stiff up your yes. lip, you know, and, and, and look, I think, I think a measure that's good. Right. I mean, you can't, you know, and, and I say this as a sensitive boy, but I mean, you can't let everything get you down. I mean, you're, you you will just, you will just be miserable. And there's, too th- there's too much
1: out there. There's too much out there.
0: Yeah, you got that right. So can I read one last thing? Go ahead. It's visible. Near the and this is uh, heading into his big conclusion. Near the end of an early film of Ing- Ingmar Bergman through a glass darkly, a young woman experiencing the embrace of what appears to be profound psychotic depression has a terrifying hallucination. Anticipating the arrival of some transcendental In Saving Glimpse of God, she sees instead the quivering shape of a monstrous spider that is attempting to violate her sexually. It is an instant of horror and scalding truth. Yet even in this vision of Bergman, who has suffered cruelly from depression, there is a sense that all of his accomplished artistry, has somehow fallen short of a true rendition of the drowned minds appalling phantasmagoria. I don't know why anybody would be put off by the vocabulary. (laughs) Since antiquity, in the tortured lament of Job, in the choruses of Sophocles and Aeschylus, chroniclers of the human spirit have been wrestling with a vocabulary that might give proper expression to the desolation of melancholia. Though the course of, through the course of literature and art, the theme of depression has run like a durable thread of woe, from Hamlet's soliloquy to the verses of Emily Dickinson and Gerard Manley Hopkins, from John Donne to Hawthorne and Dostoevsky and Poe, Camus and Conrad and Virginia Woolf, In many of Albrecht Durer's engravings, there are harrowing depictions of his own melancholia. The manic wheeling stars of Van Gogh are the precursors of the artist's plunge into dementia and the extinction of self. It is a suffering that often tinges the music of Beethoven, of Schumann and Mahler, and permeates the darker cantatas of Bach and then he ends on an up note because we can get better yeah Um, yeah but I mean you gotta you gotta last it out and I um you know I, I I I don't think that uh I think even the casual listeners, uh, recognize that I wasn't, I wasn't awash in schwa de vive Um, when I did, um, you know, the solo, uh, managing expectations, supplemental, um, I think just in, in human terms, uh, watching, um, the fall out of Kabul in Afghanistan uh, was tough. I think it was probably the first domino to fall. Um, but I think that I, I, you know, I've been I've been through this before, and uh, I I know. Okay, so I mean, certain practical things matter certain practical things work and so like i you know i i talked to uh i I resumed um therapy and uh so i talked so here's a good thing that came out of COVID: you get to talk to a head shrinker in another city so i i talked to uh and, and the insurance will uh still pay for it so um I I talked to the woman that I used to talk to in Austin and um, she's like, look, this is anecdotal and this is just my observation and I haven't read anything about it, but people who had problems before the pandemic are not are are not better yeah. <laughs> since the pandemic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the world events of the last two years haven't helped.
0: Two years. You know, we keep talking about when things get back to normal. Uh, it's crossed my mind, and, and and I'm not just feeling bad uh, as an intellectual exercise of extrapolating what's gonna happen next. I, I don't know how normal things ever get. I mean i've I've never honestly believed in normal
1: no, just different. Anyway. It's just different. yeah, uh, you know we're we're coming up on the twentieth anniversary of nine eleven and people will talk about when are we going to get back to normal when it came to uh, travel and terror alerts and things like that
0: they never did shoes off and don't you just yeah. feel so safe doing that <laughs> <laughs> That's stupidest thing yeah. the shoe thing um how are we doing on time you 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 got like
1: we've, we've got a, we've got some time left
0: all right yeah. so so there's a there's a book that i know i've mentioned before um called the nightingale song and mm-hmm. it is a great book and certainly one of the most uh, important that I have read cause um, it takes five graduates of Annapolis through Vietnam or at least the Vietnam era military and into the Reagan administration and out the other side, and in so doing, really illuminates a huge part of the mid-20th century in America, and and um, one of the guys, you know, so, so, I mean, we're familiar with John McCain. He's probably the most famous of the five guys profiled, but um, Oliver North was one of them, and so was J- Jim Webb, who I've referred to several times uh, uh, a, um, a a distinguished career in public service, um, uh, among other things, but, um, um, also a decorated, um, combat vet, uh, vet in, uh, Vietnam. Another guy who was in Vietnam was named Robert McFarlane is from, his friends called him bud bud McFarlane. and he was among the first marines um to wade ashore in denang and there was um i mean this is like how sur- surreal um they wade ashore <laughs> they come ashore and there's like a bunch of vietnamese and like you know like the girls and the ao yais the traditional the the slacks and then like the colorful tunic or, you know, on top and they're holding up a big sign, welcome to the gallant Marines, you know, like like any of these guys knew what they were getting into. Um, anyway, McFarland was uh, uh, an artillery officer. Um, when he got out, he continued his education. And he became a big brain um, in national, in like foreign affairs. So he was, I mean, he he was friends and uh, a protege of Brent Scowcroft, who was a big shot in the, uh, you know, Reagan administration, and then later the George H.W. Bush administration. But there were some things about McFarlane. Um, he became Reagan's national security advisor and was part of got caught up in the iran contra affair and by got caught up in i mean he was pretty guilty of it so the 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 thing is um and i don't think i'm not sure that we have uh time with your with your heart stop this week uh to get into all of iran contra um but it was essentially trading trying to open so iran okay so so when i was writing for the newspaper i talked to like the I went I went to a um, an appearance of the guy and I can't even remember the guy's name now, but he was like the number three in the State Department in the Reagan administration at one point. And he he said if the the avowed enemy of the United States in the Reagan administration was the Soviet Union, but the de facto enemy was. Iran and. Um, I think they were, I mean, I'm reading a book 1983 about how close the Americans and the Russian, the Soviets really came to nuclear war. So the Ameri- the, the the Soviets were both avowed and de facto enemies of the United States. But 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 Iran. And so at, at one point, so Iran is locked in a battle with Saddam Hussein's or, Iran is locked in battle with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. The Iranians needed weapons and the Americans needed some help getting some hostages out of Lebanon. And so this all looks like arms for hostages. That's what it looked like to some people, Brian.
1: Of course it's not.
0: (laughs) Then... That money that you got, they also got some money for the arms and that money is a little bit off the books. So what good use can you put to it? Cause it's not like you're a crook and you're gonna put it in your own pocket. So Oliver North takes it down and like supplies the Contra um, guerrillas fighting the communist Sandinistas in Nicaragua
1: so we'll just fight we'll just fight bad guys on two different continents but in a kind of a quiet way
0: super quiet and also illegal after the Bolin amendment I mean it was all I mean so there's all of this so so McFarlane um was uh so again he he's He's a, he's a formerly a Marine officer. Uh, He's an intellectual. And so uh, Robert Timberg writes about um, McFarlane in the Nightingale song. He says, as his depression deepened, he tried to shake it. In December, with Iran Contra shrapnel flying furiously, he hunkered down and composed an ambitious national security policy package that he hoped would impart fresh momentum to the foundering reagan revolution and perhaps salvage some of his own reputation he wrote night and day his ideas sweeping across the full spectrum of foreign policy issues arms control the middle east central america defense spending he passed it through an intermediary intermediary to george schultz who was the secretary of state who dropped him a note thanking him for his views, the classic Washington kiss off. He held out hope that Reagan would incorporate some of his ideas into the January 27 uh, State of the Union message, not a word. By early February, he was suffocating in the reality of his new life. He was no longer a player, and he believed he could never hope to be a player again. He had set his nation on a course that, however well intended, had humiliated the president he had served for five years, uh, the man who had given him the chance of a lifetime. His evasions, half-truths, and lies were swirling around in the malodorous Iran-Contra ether. It was only a matter of time until they reached critical mass and destroyed the good name. He had carefully constructed over three decades of dedicated and distinguished public service. By then, Johnny mcfarland that was his wife, his wife uh, was picking up frequent clues about her husband's state of mind, but they were not fully registering. At one point he said, I'm depressed and I'm going to be depressed for a long time. It was out of character for him. He rarely allowed himself to show uncertainty or weakness. Typical guy response. Am I right? Just have another drink and repress it. What's the matter with you? Right. Johnny was normally quick to confront a problem, but she put off dealing with this one. Um, she was a school teacher. She was busy. Um, I really, she told herself, I really have to pay more attention to what's going on with Bud taking comfort in the belief that she would soon have all the time she needed to devote to him. On February eighth, she spent 12 hours working on student papers, um, assigning grades, and writing comments well into the evening. Over the previous few days, her husband had been writing too. He wrote a note to her, a note to an editor friend, and a note to a congressional committee admitting his role in obtaining a multi-million dollar contribution for the Contras from the Saudis through his old friend from Lebanon, Prince Bandar, by then the Saudi ambassador to the United States. Exhausted, Johnny finally said she was going upstairs. McFarland said he would uh, just be another few minutes. Shortly after 11, he went into the kitchen and propped the note to his wife against his briefcase Then he unsealed a bottle of Valium and washed down about 30 pills with a glass of wine. After a few moments, he climbed the stairs to the second floor bedroom and exchanged small talk with Johnny. Good night, he murmured to his wife of 30 years as they lay together for what he thought would be the last time. Days later, as he recovered from the failed suicide attempt at Bethesda Naval Hospital, he told his daughter, Lori, That he felt as if he were lying in a giant pit and people were standing above the rim pelting him with garbage with garbage Uh, mike deaver who was uh, at this point maybe reagan's chief of staff but in the reagan administration came by to visit you've got nothing to be ashamed of he told mcfarland ronald reagan used you later that day deaver said to his wife carolyn i wish bud were an alcoholic i could help him A number of Washington press types called the suicide attempt a sham designed to fail. They dismissed it as a transparent plea for sympathy and clemency. Others viewed it as a cry for help on the part of a man who had depleted his emotional resources. His closest friends saw it for what it was, seppuku, ritual suicide, the ultimate act of atonement. Go back to the Naval Academy What you were, uh, what we were all taught, said Brent Scowcroft, his old friend and mentor. Even if you don't think you were completely responsible, it went wrong and you were there. Scowcroft was West Point, not Annapolis, but it was the same thing. That's an an army expression, right? It went wrong and you were there. So somebody's Mm got to be responsible. Um, In March, home from the hospital, McFarland was interviewed by Barbara Walters on ABC's 2020. Speaking of Iran-Contra, he said, I think, Barbara, that in a year's time, a curious and haunting factor will come out of this episode is the Vietnam War. In May, during a noon break in his four days of congressional testimony, He saw a television news spot that infuriated him. The reporter said the committee was dealing gingerly with him because of his suicide attempt and the likelihood that he was on medication. Uh, After lunch, as House Counsel John Nields resumed questioning, McFarland was still fuming. He said he resented the implication that he was, quote, a radger, rather fragile flower who had to be treated with kid gloves. That is nonsense, he told Niels, sounding like a Marine for the first time in months. Shoot your best shot. Anyway. Um, what I
1: think That takes some guts to tell a uh, congressional hearing to shoot your best shot.
0: I just think it's interesting that you're a, a guy's low and he can still get back up to where he needs to be. This is <laughs> there's, so there's um. there's a scene in the movie Ishtar, which is, written and directed by Elaine May and is considered by some to be the worst movie ever made. It had Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman in it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, but there's a scene where Dustin Hoffman's standing on the ledge uh, and he's threatening to jump and he doesn't really wanna jump, but he he calls Warren Beatty. So Dustin Hoffman's on the ledge and the cops are there and the fire department's there and his parents are there and they bring a rabbi and he's embarrassed. Dustin Hoffman's, you know, mortified. And uh Warren Beatty um jumps or gets out on the ledge to go out and get him. And and he says, um, he said, Chuck, or that that's Dustin Hoffman's name, he says there's a lot of people who've got it worse than you. There's, 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 there's poor people and there's sick people. And there's people who don't have a friend who will come out on a ledge to get them. And Dustin Hoffman says, Oh, Lyle, that's Warren baby's name. Yeah. I'm such an Ishtar nerd. I actually know the character's names. <laughs> says, I'm not the man you thought I was. He says, yeah, you are. You're, you are the man I thought you were. You're the guy who says, "I'd rather have nothing than settle for less," <laughs> and uh, thereby hangs the tale. Yeah. All right.
1: Yeah, you know, I thought you were going to quote uh, uh, one of your favorites from The Edge. What one man do, another man can do too.
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I'm not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that that sounds. And
0: and this is, and and, you know, and I, I I think, I think. Well, I'm just saying, I don't know that I do as good as Anthony Hopkins against that bear is my only point. But, but I, I, I mean, when I was reading the the William Styron, we were talking about physical suffering, right? Mrs. Winger's thing lately has been to like read about these like incredible these incredible stories of endurance, right? like she read unbroken and she just cannot believe how much a human being can suffer. and then and then that guy, like lived to like go back to like, first of all, he was like, I don't know, I think he wasn't not religious before, but he got really religious, went back and like forgave. The sadistic Japanese. Oh. Come on, old guard. Really? Yeah. And the, yeah, which, by the way, which, by the way, Mrs. Winger found even like the most incredible thing in the entire book. <laughs> <But> just...
1: <laughs> not the not the not the bamboo splinters under yeah, your fingernails. Or, you know, <laughs> the fingernails,
0: you know, lifting. <laughs> You know, li- lifting the the logs or the beams or whatever. Just, I mean, just the beatings they took. Just even, even loose in nature, right? Yeah. And this is, and this is, okay. You got to go, right? I do. Okay. Well, um, I am happy then that you were able to join me, and listen to me read to you. Uh, we can pick some of this up next time or not um i'm tempted to uh uh rewatch ishtar i'd rather maybe talk about that um but um uh i'm thinking everybody...
1: yeah i'm thinking i'll go back and read the nightingale song because it's probably been 15 years since i read it and it's it's really good
0: it's so it's so good it's so good it, it, it's i mean go ahead if
1: if if you liked the right stuff and Mitch Album's Fab Five. You put those to
0: Fab Five.
1: Fab Five about uh, the Fab <laughs> Five from the University of Michigan.
0: <laughs> um. Yeah, there there is a lot more to talk about from the Nightingale song. The whole message to Garcia aspect of it. Um, the idea that none of these guys wanted to fail their commanding officer. I mean, the, the whole thing was just predicated on you give me, you you point me and I'll march, mm-hmm. and uh, and I like that. I I I feel aspects of that inside myself. Um, I think it can be misdirected. I think they got. Yeah. I, I think a lot of Germans got pointed uh, and they marched. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, listen. Um, Uh, thanks to Chris Levine and the refresher, uh, pop culture therapy podcast on Spotify. Thanks to MrsWinger.com. Thanks to all in dream comics and books in the great city of Denver, Colorado, where Ray can be reached at 303-333-8616. This has been the. Managing Expectations podcast. Say it right. It's not the menaging expectations podcast. It's the Managing Expectations podcast. I'm Jeff Winger. That's Brian Grimm. Peace and love.